Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. You're here in Psalm 54 this morning. I want you to turn over to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, if you will, around about the 22nd chapter. Uh, as we've been taking our time to study through the Psalms over the last, well, several months, uh, we've come across several of them, uh, and then they have a heading to them. A handful of these headings, particularly in this particular section of the Psalms, have a historical heading. Uh, and that's very important, I think, as we look through these Psalms and study them. Uh, the Holy Spirit moved, and it's penned here for us, and it gives us, or I should say, could give us a great opportunity to study a little bit in the Old Testament and find, in particular, in this one here in the 54th Psalm about David, to find out what he was doing in life, where was going, what brought about the penning of this particular psalm that is preserved for us. And you'll note here in the 54th Psalm, it talks to the chief musician on Neganoth, Maskell. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, uh, these four, 52, 53, 54, and 55, are all highlighted with that Hebrew word maskel, and it has this idea, deep understanding, meaning what is about to follow in this psalm is worthy of your utmost consideration and meditation upon. You'll note that that is related also in the 52nd psalm and the 53rd psalm, as I said, and also the 55th. In this particular passage here, you could speak of it, and that is by David's uh, perspective, being the best of times, and yet at the same time, the worst of times. David has been anointed the king of Israel. That's the best of times. The worst of times is he has to wait. And while he waits, another king... Saul will finish out his administration. And during this time, Saul will not be content to coexist in any realm with David. And so he will hunt for David as a common animal. And it's sad, really, to consider that by marriage they're related to each other. It's true. And this whole section of prelude that, that brought about the penning of the 54th Psalm is detailed much like the 52nd Psalm, and you'll remember Dog the Edomite, is also narrated. Look over in 1 Samuel chapter 22. 1 Samuel chapter 22, and, and I want to go through two chapters here. Because I think if you, if you can look in these two or three chapters, it will bring to life in a newfound way the understanding of the 54th Psalm. You'll note in your bulletins that I've entitled the 54th Psalm, Pursuit and Betrayal. Now, I, I don't know everyone's past that's with us this morning. You don't know mine, but I will tell you that betrayal seems to be something that is all too common in the human experience. Um, my wife and I have a quote that we, I don't know where we got it originally, but... We've shared it with each other a number of times since we've been married. We just, just commemorated 18 years. And, and the quote goes like this. Expectations ruin relationships. Now, it was a part of my life that I thought that was the greatest quote on the face of the earth. 
But there are expectations that I do have, right? Uh, like, for instance, when I leave at night, unless I've otherwise communicated and underscored, my wife should have an expectation of what? Coming home helps with your marriage. I'm just, I mean, I know that's, she should have that expectation. Uh, my wife should have the expectation that I love her, that I am going to be faithful to her. So in those sense, that statement that I gave you earlier is not true. There are expectations that parents and children should have for each other. There are expectations that a society and its leaders ought to have. There are expectations that friends ought to have among each other. I believe it's the Proverbs that talks about a whisper separating chief friends. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Proverbs are principles broadly applied to the, the essence of life. And yes, if I have a close friend and I'm over here whispering about him, gossiping, etc. about them, what is that going to happen or what is that going to occur that's going to bring about but devastation in the relationship that I have with my friend? And you might would highlight all of those failed responses to necessary uh, uh, expectations and see that that could be summarized in one word, and it really is betrayal. All too common in life. This is the exact essence of where David is historically when these, this very psalm is conceived. Look, if you will, we, we were just a couple of weeks ago in the 52nd psalm. I'm sorry, in the 22nd chapter of 1 Samuel. So I want you to go there. Uh, I'm going to try to stitch them together, the 52nd and the 54th Psalm, just for a moment. But in Psalm uh, 52, we have the understanding about Dog the Edomite. And that story is narrated for us in the 22nd chapter of 1 Samuel. And if you were to take time to read there, and I want you to turn there just for a moment, I have highlighted a few things in the Scriptures, and I, I want to point them to you, because it sets together an important backdrop for consideration. Look, if you will, in 1 Samuel chapter 22. You'll find here that there's a cave in a place called Adullam, a cave in Adullam in verse number 1. David uh, therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. Now, we're not going to take time for this, but I realize that you didn't pass the exit for Adullam when you got here. And so in your mind, you might think, and where is that at? But if you were to turn in the back of your maps, and you were to find the Dead Sea, and it, and it kind of looks like a G a little bit, and you find that Dead Sea, and you look over to the left-hand side, and you see the Mediterranean Sea, all of the events that are going to unfold from practically the 22nd chapter down to the 24th or 25th chapter are all going to happen between that area. And it looks small. But by vantage of any map, it is pretty expansive when you talk about treading it with pitter-patter, when you talk about walking it. And in that region, you have forest, you have wilderness, you have an oasis called En Gedi, you have caves like this one of Adullam. And just in that very vicinity is where David would have grown up, just in the southern portion of that in Bethlehem. He's on the run. Saul wants to take his life there 
Saul is at great enmity against David, though David has done nothing at this point to earn the hatred wherewith Saul hates him. And so he comes to his cave of Dulam, and there's his dad and his mom and his brethren. And remember, some of his brethren served in Saul's army. Do you remember back just a few chapters earlier? Papa Jesse had sent provision. And who did he send provision to? David's brothers. Where were they? They were encamped with Saul to oppose Goliath. So some of these men, some of these individuals were very familiar with King Saul. And they now have left all of their homes, the, the uh, uh, inherited lands, the multi-generational lands that God had given them, and they're all hid in a cave. And David bears this weight. So David makes a decision. He said, let's go. And so he packs them all up. And you'll note here in verse number 3, he went thence to Mitzvah of Moab. There's a number of cities in, in, the, in the land of Israel named Mitzvah. It means a lookout, a fortress, if you will. The portion of Moab is in the Transjordan area. It's in Moab, so it's across the area. To the right, if you're looking at a map, it's on the right-hand side of uh, the Dead Sea. He goes to Mitzvah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do for me. And he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt for him all the while that David was in the hold. He's in a place of security. And I want you to notice verse number 5, because I'm going to refer back to it later on. And the prophet Gad... Who's the prophet Gad? I'm going to help you with it. It's a prophet whose name was Gad. That's about all we know about him. But the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hold, depart, and get thee in the land of Judah. And David departed, and he came into the land of the forest, rather, the forest of Harith. And that, again, is back not far from the cave of Adullam. So if you will, he's left the cave of Adullam. His parents have come up from Bethlehem to met him. He's run around the wilderness. They've met at Adullam. He's taken them down to Mitzvah, which is at Moab, a place where Saul won't go because it's under the authority of another king. And he would have said, I'll pass the time in Moab because Saul ain't coming to Moab. The Philistines are not coming to Moab. But a certain prophet named Gad said, listen, this isn't your place. Go back. So he leaves of his family there in Moab, and they go to the forest of Hareth, and he's, can I use this, hanging out. He's awaiting. And we're going to skip through some of this, but it's in this following chapters as he returns to this forest that he winds up going into the tabernacle, as we related to you a couple weeks ago. And this is where Saul uh, realizes that David had received relief from Abathar the high priest, which dwelt in the city of Nob. And Doe comes in there, and Saul, realizing that he has been, in his mind, betrayed, simply because the priest had given necessity, he had given food to David, orders his men to destroy the city of Nob, all the inhabitants. It was a priestly area, particularly those of the descendants of Eli. And they would not. So then he turned to that old heathen Doe, the Moabite, and he killed them all. And if you want to know the extent of it, you look down into verse number 19. The extent of which this vile man, Doe, destroyed the city. The city of the priests smote he with the edge of the sword, both men and women and children and suckling. And oxen and asses and sheep with the edge of the sword. If you write in your Bible, you'll take a note, you just pen this. 
Doag, Doag did more destruction to the godless city of Nob than King Saul ever did to the city of which Agag was king. That's a powerful consideration. And so you've come in verse number 20, there was one priest. His name is Abathar. He was the grandson of Eli. He, and as is related later in the text, and his ephod escape. If you're reading through this and wonder what an ephod is, it's not vegetables. It is his priestly raiment. In fact, it is the raiment given unto the high priest. And Abathar saw his daddy die, and he saw his brethren die, and if he had children, he saw his children die. And he got out with the one necessary item which he needed, and that was the high priestly ephod, and he ran. Now, where's old Abathar going to run? Look in verse number 23. Verse 22, you find out that he goes to David. Listen to what David tells him in verse number 23. He says, Abide thou with me, fear not. For he that seeketh my life seeketh thy life. And I underline this in my, in my scriptures. He says, But with me thou shalt be in safeguard. You shalt be under watch, if you will. You're going to be under ward. I'm going to take care of you, O Abathar. Well, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? Because the same people that are hunting David will also soon hunt Abathar. What happened to Abathar's family, had David not got his family down to Moab, surely that was the goal to do the same thing to David's family. Who is David to promise safeguard to anyone? But Abathar believes him. And that leads us into chapter 23. Then they told David, those of his, uh, his men, if you will, his army, some 400 men that are mentioned earlier, they said to him, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah. And they robbed the threshing floor. Now Keilah is a fortress not far from Masada. It was down in the southern part of that Dead Sea region. And being it was a fortress city, it would be a major thing if the Philistines took that city. Because if they took it, they would have had a stronghold right in the land of Judah, right in the midst of the land of Israel. Now an interesting thing comes to mind about this. Why is David being told? He's not the king. Why don't they go tell Saul? I think the interest is this. From a human perspective, Saul had other things. Saul was more focused on the destruction of David than doing what any king or any governmental leader would seek to do, which is to protect the people to whom they have charge. Saul's nowhere to be found. So David goes down. He first, if you will, in fact, in this chapter, in verse 23, no less than three different times, he's going to record his prayer. Notice, if you will, the first of these in verse 2. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and smite these Philistines? And the Lord said unto David, what's he say in verse number 2? Go and smite the Philistines and save Keilah. And David's men said unto him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more so, if you will? How much more then if we come to Keilah against the armies of Philistines? Listen, David, we've got our hands full with Saul. And you want us to go against the advancing army of the five kings 
of the Philistines. So in verse number 4, David inquires a second time of the Lord. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into thy hand. And they, trusting David's word, my emphasis there, trusting that David is walking with God, trusting that David is leading them in paths of right. Verse number 5, David and his man went to Keilah and fought the Philistines and brought away their cattle and smote their great slaughter, so that David did what? He saved the inhabitants. Now, I don't know about you. But if my fat was in the proverbial fire, and my adversaries, insurmountable and innumerable hosts, has come up against me, and out from the forests and caverns of the Dead Sea area rode a miscreant group of 400 men led by the shepherd king and saved my bacon, what would be your response to him? Man, I, I might would have at least given a key to the city. Certainly, I would have said, thank you. What can I do? In this day and age, it wouldn't be uncommon for the elders of the city to come forth and look at David and make him their king. Notice the next verse. And it was told in verse 7, it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, God hath delivered him in mine hand, for he shut in by entering into a town that had gates and bars. It seems that Saul knew something different. Press on to verse number 8. Saul called all the people, to war to, uh, all the people together to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Verse number 9, And David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him. And said to Abathar, that was the only priest that escaped from Nob, and he escaped with an ephod. Notice, if you will, in this passage. And he said to Abathar the priest, bring hither the ephod. And then said David, this is the third time he's prayed, O Lord God of Israel, thy servant hath certainly heard that Saul seeketh to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Notice verse 11. Will the men of Keilah deliver me up into his hands? Second question, will Saul come down? As the servant hath heard, O Lord God of Israel, beseech thee, tell thy servant, and the Lord said. What did the Lord say? Now looking at verse number 11, what's conveniently missing? David specifically asked two questions. How many are answered by God in verse 11? One. Notice verse 12. This is the fourth time he prayed. <laughs> then said David, in case you forgot, Lord, I had another question. Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? It's interesting. In one sense, it could be as an easy assumption to know what Saul wanted. He had readily made that knowledge known to everyone but not the men of Keilah. They had a choice they could have made. When David's praying here, he's praying what they might do. God, in your foreknowledge, verse number 12, and the Lord said what? With friends like that, you can come and save our city, David. They had robbed the threshing floor and taken them out of provision. 
We're going to starve when harvest comes no more. David comes, and we read the narrative. He and his 400 bands of men, except for those that perhaps stayed by the stuff, as it were, come in out of the west, riding hard, galloping towards the sound of infinite doom, and defeat with a mighty hand of God the adversary, and take of all their cattle. And now the stores of Keilah are restored. They've got food and provision. They've been delivered. And yet they had all the while decided what were they going to do. We're going to bite the hand that feeds us. So in these passages in verse number 13, David, his men, they depart out of Keilah. And went whithersoever they could, and it was told Saul, David has escaped Keilah. And he forbear to go forth. So look at verse 14. Again, all of this is the background which leads up to the 54th Psalm. He's been betrayed by Saul. Daddy-in-law. Now, while that's ongoing, and that's been greatly underway, he has saved, he and his men, a whole city. Only by divine decree and wisdom to be told that they sought to wait till Saul got there and they themselves are going to press him in the irons and Saul would have him. He's been betrayed by the people he saved. So David says, you know what, I'll go to the wilderness in the strongholds. Up in those rocky ascents where it is not easy for men to go. I'll go back to that cave, you know. I'll go back into that area and I'll tuck away and there'll be safety. So it goes to the mountain. The scriptures, uh, the wilderness, the mountain in the wilderness is Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God delivered him not into his hand. And David saw that Saul was come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a wood. You see there that Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and sought to strengthen uh, David's heart by the hand of God. And verse, uh, if you will, continue. Notice verse number 19. And I, I'm doing this for time's sake, but look at verse number 19. Then came up the Ziphites. Now, who might we understand the Ziphites as? Ites mean people. So they are the people of Ziph. Where's David at? The wilderness of... Note verse 19. Then came up the Ziphites to Saul to Gibeah saying, Doth not David hide himself with us in the strongholds in the woods in the hill of Hekelah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? What have they done? Saul, I can tell you exactly his address. What has he done to the people of Ziph? Nothing. Saul said, Blessed be the Lord, for ye have compassion upon me. You continue going down... Uh, all the way through this chapter, you'll find eventually in verse number 25, he comes to the land of the wilderness of Moan. He's moved. This is the fifth or sixth time in this season of time that he's moved. And next to the last verse, Saul finally catches him. Everywhere that he could have went, at every turn he has been betrayed. So they're finally in these great mountains, overwhelmed forces, of Saul seek to finally take David, and there will be no escape. The scripture says in verse number 28, they went against the Philistines. Why? Because Saul had heard just, just before his battle with David 
The Philistines have reattacked. Saul, you have to come back. And this season of battle concludes. In fact, they set up a place, Shelaham Helkoth. The stronghold of two divisions is what it means. Literally, his side of the mountains and my side. And then David begins in verse number 24, chapter 24, to on-go and to escape the devastation that Saul seeks to press upon David. Now back, if you will, to Psalm 54. I want you to look at the heading again. To the chief musician on Neganoth. A maskal, deep instruction here. A psalm of David when the Zithims came and said to Saul, Doth not David hide himself with us? If you needed one word to write at the heading of this psalm, just one word, you would write betrayal. We went through all of the scriptures to set the motive, to set the backdrop. David, everywhere he's gone, has sought to do good. He has sought to be kind. He has sought to ally himself with the people of God. He has sought to resist at every opportunity, any opportunity to take the life of King Saul. Yet he would save cities and villages and they would only seek to render him prisoner to Saul. And as you come to this 54th Psalm, of all the betrayals that the nation of Israel has experienced, there will be yet one that will come. I think of Daniel chapter 9, he talks about the Antichrist making a covenant with the people of God only to break it. It's part of the human experience. We're talking about betrayal, we're talking about people who I've mentioned here the, the thought of it can occur in marriages, relationships with children, friends, and no doubt as you say this, there might be certain circumstances that come to your heart and your mind. Maybe you've been betrayed. Maybe your life right now, the decisions that you're making, the place you find yourself in life, is because there's some level of being disappointed to a lesser or greater extent by someone that should have done differently. I would note in dealing with betrayal, David dealt with it in a wise way. Let me give you a couple of ways he dealt with it. Number one, looking at the face of betrayal, he never tried to revenge himself. Not once. When God gives him the wisdom that the men of the city of Keilah are going to deliver him to Saul, what does David do? Listen, I think the scripture said it's 600 of them. If 600 men and one shepherd king could be used of God to wipe the floor with the Philistines, what could they do to the lesser city of Keilah? Realizing by divine decree that he was going to be betrayed, why didn't he turn his sword and kill them all? He feared God. Those were Jewish people. One day he's going to be their king. Sometimes in times of being betrayed, 
Sometimes we look at this and say, well, I'm going to get my way back. You punch me, I'm going to punch you harder. That might be acceptable in political arena. But for a child of God, that is a godless way to live. Romans speaks of this as well. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. David never tries to repay. Let me tell you the second thing he does while he's being betrayed. David is sensitive to the leading of the Lord. You know, I, I think about the fact that he runs to Moab with his family. And remember that old prophet? What was his name again? Gad. Gad said, you need to go back. Over yonder is where you need to be. He doesn't argue. He doesn't complain. He doesn't whine. He doesn't fret. He doesn't hesitate. What does he do? He obeys the word of the Lord. He's sensitive to that. A third thing that he does during a time of betrayal, as you see in this great narrative, he's praying. Asking specific questions. Lord, will they do this? Lord, will Saul do this? Lord, what should I do? Lord, where should I go? I'll give you a fourth thing that he does during the time of betrayal. We didn't read this text. I'll leave that to be your homework. But not only did he not seek vengeance, he forgave them. Keep in mind, he did become king. And when he became king, it's not like a president or a governor that we have today. They often talk, and we hear it all the time, that when I get to Washington, when I get to here, I'm going to do this. Our, our republic, we're not set up that way. Nobody has that kind of authority, although they have a lot. But in these days, it was an absolute type of authority. If the king ordered Doug to go kill all the priests, the people could be upset with it, but nobody was going to argue. You're not going to sue him. You're not going to indict him. You're not going to impeach him. That's what it is. He is the legislature, he is the executive officer, and he is the head of the judicial branch. When David became king, couldn't he have turned his knives and men towards Keilah? Couldn't he have said to his soldiers, you know, Abishai and Joab and Shammah and Uriah and all of them, Hey, go on down to the wilderness of Ziph and make that place desolate. He set his heart to forgive him. Can I give you a fifth thing? I don't know when he wrote the 54th Psalm. I know what he wrote it about. Did he write that at the same time the 22nd was out, or 23rd, 22nd, 23rd, 24th chapter of Samuel was being penned? I wouldn't say that. Perhaps it's written by a matter of reflection. However, the 54th Psalm does follow the 51st Psalm chronologically, doesn't it? And what is the historical context of the 51st Psalm? You can cheat. You can look if you want. It's an open book. It's the same with Bathsheba. Now time will not allow me to go back and rehearse to you all of this. 
But Bathsheba was the granddaughter, I believe, of one of David's closest advisors. Uriah, the Hittite, was one of David's greatest mighty men. The fifth thing I will give you this morning about betrayal in the context, the narrative that led about to the writing of this psalm. David was no greater man than the men of Keilah. David was no greater man than those that abode in the wilderness of Ziph. As the scripture mentions, the Zithims. What are you saying? David had, just like every individual, the capacity to do great evil. For when David was king, did he not betray Uriah? And unlike the citizens of Keilah, unlike those that dwelt in the wilderness of Ziph or in the wilderness of Moan, David had fought with Uriah. David had bled with Uriah. Uriah had pledged fidelity to the kingdom of Judah and Israel and its head, David. And after the sin and conception that Bathsheba had had, David even calls for Uriah and comes back and tries through deception to cover his plight. And yet Uriah found himself an honorable man. And David sent him to his death. To remind you of it, Joab was to lead a charge with all the mighty men, with Uriah's division being at the front And then in the hottest part of the battle, Joab and all the men were to what? Withdraw. David not only betrayed Uriah, but David persuaded all of the great friends that Uriah thought he had to betray him as well. What we think about Psalm 54, it perhaps is one that every child of God ought to be extremely familiar with. Because not only likely have all of us come to a place in our life where we've been betrayed by someone. That there are due expectations that could have been placed by God or by the word of God on the life of someone and that individual failed us. They should have known better. Children that were raised to do one thing. And then in the early adult life, and maybe even a perpetuation to it, did something totally different. Maybe parents were in that regard. That they led a life like this and then turned and dramatically did all that they said was wrong. Pastors betray people. Church people betray pastors. Husbands and wives betray each other. Note these seven verses quickly, if you will. I'll give you the outline just for time's sake this morning. David makes an appeal. David makes an announcement. And God gives assurance. Notice, if you will, in verse number one, two. 
and I am not going to do this first verse justice. But look what his appeal is. His appeal is not to sword and shield. His appeal is not to money and wealth and academia. His appeal is to none other than by the name of the Almighty God. Notice, if you will, save me, O God. What's the prepositional phrase there? By thy name. I don't know about you. We've got folks here this morning, a lot of different names. Is your name strong enough that it can save somebody? We throw around our names. People change their names. What is significant here is that David seeks an appeal in the very name of God. In fact, if you, if you, pull, if you pull your eyes down to verse number 6, you'll find out he promises to praise God by his name. And in poetic rendering, it's called an inclusio, meaning he started and concluded. It's a poetic expression. The whole thing revolves around the name of something. In this particular case, the name of God. You know, that name which is above every name, Philippians chapter 2. That name which will come a day where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That name whereby God in the 20th chapter of Exodus says, Thou shalt not take my name in vain. There's something about the name of God. The name of God is just not his identification point. All gods in this region had a name. Baal had a name. Ashtaroth had a name. But Jehovah God was different because the name was identified not singular as a description of a person, but rather as the attributes of all that that person contained. Let me give you two passages to look at. We won't turn to them, but you can write them in the margin. Exodus chapter 3, and particularly verse number 17. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 17, Moses is in the wilderness of Midian. God is going to call him. He looks out from thence and he saw something. A bush that was burning yet not consumed. And he turned aside to see what this thing should be. From the voice, you know, take off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the place thou standest there is holy ground. Moses did so, and from the bush, God spoke to him, and he said, Moses, I want you to get back to the land of Egypt, and you tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And they go through a whole narrative of why he can't. And finally, his last rendering was this, God, when I get there, they're going to ask what your name is. Who shall I say that thou art? Do you remember what the Lord spoke to him? I am that I am. Now listen, friend, the theological depth of truth is far too vast to mine in a few seconds. In that sentence, he summarized that he is self-sufficient. I am. In that sentence, he summarizes that he is eternally existent, that I am. That he has all power. And all majesty. And overcome all enemies and all gods. That's my name. I am that I am. No other God is like unto me, Moses. The second passage I would give you is Ezekiel chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34 in the 6th and 7th verses. And God speaks there in great magnitude. 
mentioning of his name, and he talks about his justice and his decree and his might and his majesty. All of this. And David appealing. David would have had that text, the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, present. And as he cries upon God, he needs an eternal, self-sufficient, all-powerful God to deal with this. He needs a God that knows of all of the details. A God that knows of all the wisdom. A God that knows of all the faults and the intents of the heart. David cries out in the 51st Psalm, Save me, O God, by thy name. Verse number 2, he says, Hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. What was his prayer? Well, if you go back to the passage we looked at a moment ago, he had at least four or five of them. My favorite one is when he tells Abathar, Abathar, get the ephod. And what no saving ability in that ephod? Listen, if there's saving ability in that ephod, all the descendants of Abathar would still be alive. Abathar had to save the ephod. The ephod didn't save Abathar. You only had him get the ephod? Because then it contained the essence of all the promises of God. Let me give you an analogy to understand what, what I'm, to better communicate what I'm trying to say. There are times you pray. And there are times that you say, let me get my Bible and then pray. That's the essence. God, you have preserved your people. He is praying to the very promises that God has made, that God that does not change. And note this for a second. It's been hundreds of years since the time of Moses and the development of ephods and high priests were installed. It's been hundreds of years of the time you get to David. And David, looking back upon it, you're the same God that has the same ability then as you do now. And now we stand more than 2,000 years this side of David. And you know what? God hasn't changed. Amen. The God that could hear David when he was being betrayed and when treachery was all about and when danger lurked around every corner is the same God that can save us. That's his appeal. Notice his announcement in verse number 3. He says, For strangers are risen up against me. Now if you mark your Bible, circle that word stranger. Zor is the Hebrew word for whatever good that does you. But if you cross-reference this, that word stranger, it doesn't mean simply someone you don't know. That word stranger denotes treachery. For instance, if you were to look at Proverbs chapter 7 and talking about the pledge of marital fidelity, he talks about loving your wife and not a stranger is the passage that is, you can get the context out of that. That word stranger is used often in realms of adultery. The breaking of all marital bonds and covenants. That's the stranger he's talking about. If the king of Moab would have come to Kela, Kela rather, if it had come to Kela, they wouldn't have dared thought doing to the king of Moab what they did to the future king David. If the king of Moab was living in the wilderness of Ziph, they'd have treated him better. They broke all the rules of rightness and fidelity. And I would submit to you, Saul did the same. Listen for a moment. 
You want to speak about the treachery of King Saul towards David? Saul disobeyed God and gave quarter to Agag when God had given him a death sentence. Giving quarter. He didn't take his life. He spared him. Remember, he brings him back. And yet here's David, who is to be the heir, if you will, the next king on whom there was anointing of the prophet. And yet, it's to him, Saul, affords every expense to take his life. Now listen, I suppose, I know times change, but I suppose family ought to be fairly important to us. Sometimes I always don't agree with each other on every little thing. But what about when your family treats you in the absolute worst way? That's what he's talking about. Strangers are risen up against me. I don't even know who these people are. Have you heard that expression? I mean, I know who their daddy is, but good gracious. Oppressors. The word oppressors there, it has the idea tyrannically violent. Not seeking to govern, they're seeking to burn everything down. Literally, almost a level of insanity that is present. These are his announcements. They seek after my soul. They've risen up against me. They have not set God before them. Selah. Selah is a musical thing. It means a pause in the music. Meditate upon this. Of course not. Of course not. They have not set God. If they had set God before their eyes, they would have followed the commands and dictates of the Holy God that acted different. By the way, the strangers and oppressors, he's not talking about the Moabites. He's not talking about the pagan king over there that has once been their enemy. David was treated better at times by the Philistines and the Moabites than he is his own people. And yet when he goes before the Philistines and goes before Moab, he's always guarded because they are not God's people. They have not set their eyes before God. They have not set, rather, God before them. The children of Israel are supposed to know who Elohim God is, the creator God. They're supposed to know who Jehovah is. They have thrown off any biblical and divine parameters. You know the phrase, acting like a bunch of heathen. Legitimately true here. In fact, they're acting worse than the ungodly people. Then there's an assurance given in verses 4 through 7. And I would declare to us, this is our assurance by way of application as well. A few things here. Behold, God is my helper. He's my aid. He's my sustainer. When my father and mother forsake me, he will lift me up. You know, too often we, we get the paradigm, the order, the priorities of life all topsy-turvied. We make at the top of our list, maybe they're somewhat idols. How, how are you going to deal if you're betrayed by close friends? Now, I hope that, if that hasn't happened to you, I hope it never happens to you. <laughs> but I would tell you this. The proverb says, there's a brother born for adversity, but there's a friend that sticketh closer than a 
David didn't say, Daddy's my helper. There's just some things Daddy couldn't do for him. In fact, Daddy couldn't protect him here. Where's Jesse? Mitzvah of Moab, hiding out in the king's palace. Now, I'm not trying to in any way intimate to you that that's because Jesse was a coward. He's a man of advanced years. Mama couldn't fight this battle for him. His brethren couldn't fight this battle. And friend, if you're ever faced with being betrayed in this life, ain't nobody else going to fight that battle for you either. The Lord best be your helper. Note a second thing. I like this phrase here in verse number four. This assurance. The Lord is with them that uphold my soul. Let's just hone in on that phrase. The Lord is with us, if I can put it that way. He's with us. Emmanuel. Being interpreted, God with us. I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the world. What an announcement to be made. By biblical decree, he's, these, are, these are assurances he has because God that does not change. He didn't change in Moses' time. He didn't change in uh, 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 Samuel's time. And he's not changed in David's time. If he hasn't changed in David's time, guess what? If you're going through a betrayal this morning, last year, 10 years ago, God will still walk with you. Number three. He shall reward evil unto mine enemies. Cut them off in thy truth. Well, preacher, I, that's a bridge too far there. That's, uh, that's rough. God is a God of justice. I point out Saul for a moment. Saul didn't care how David's end came. If he could find him sleeping in a cave, he'd have killed him where he laid. If he could find him in the, in, the, in the strongholds of Ziph, then he could have died there. If it was at the fortress of Keilah, it could be there. It did not matter where to Saul. So rabid with his bitterness and hatred. It's interesting how Saul ended. If you go back and you read the end of 1 Samuel chapter 24, I think it is, and the beginning of Second Samuel chapter 1. He died in ignominy and reproach. Why? Romans. Avenge not yourself. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. The death that Saul wanted to come to David rather came upon Saul. By the way, the attitude of David there is biblical. He wasn't partying. He wasn't happy. He was not rejoicing that Saul's end has finally come and now he's king. His attitude was one that was nobly inspired. He fasted, he prayed, he grieved. For things did not have to be that way. Nahum says, the Lord is slow to anger, great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. 
God is a just God. He will reward evil. No one will ultimately escape evil that they do in this life. Notice, if you will, verse number 6. David says, I have another assurance. So faithful am I in my following of God. He makes a pledge. This isn't a fine. This is not uh, manipulation. This is a whole heart. He said, I will freely sacrifice unto thee. I will praise thy name, O Lord, for it is good. In the midst of being betrayed, David said, I'm going to worship you. Regardless of my lot, I will sacrifice. Regardless of my placement, I will praise thy glorious name. You can rest assured of that, Lord. Even if I never see justice done in this life, even if these wrongs are not righted on the timeline that I would wish they were, I'm going to remain faithful to praise thee. Verse number 7, For he hath delivered me out of all trouble. You know, isn't that a prayer often said of the child of God throughout the annals of scriptures? He shall deliver us. Then finally concludes, And mine eye hath seen the desire upon my enemies. No, let me rephrase that. I misread it. And mine eye hath seen his desire upon all my enemies. He will vindicate As one old preacher of many years ago wrote, let us trust that if we are as friendless as this man of God, David, was, we may resort to prayer as he did, to exercise the life of faith as he did, and to find ourselves singing the songs of joyous hymns of praise because of his blessed name. You betrayed this morning? I'm not simply talking about being disappointed. I'm not talking about having our feelings hurt. Have you had that deep, stabbing betrayal? Where it at times brings forth in our heart and life a desire just to never trust, never befriend, never help again? This psalm's for you. For if God could redeem David out of this plight, know the great truth to you and I? He can redeem you as well. Let's stand our feet. Father, thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.